0: So, there it is, found it. Hey, guys. Thanks for letting me be with you tonight, even if you didn't know I was gonna be here. But thanks for putting up with me. Um, Yeah, journeys of faith. Um, Is it, we're gonna gonna dive into scripture and we're gonna look at uh, four different guys that were friends that did a journey of faith together. But um, I'd like just to start sharing a little bit of my own journey of faith, if that's all right. I'd like you to just to hear a little bit of my story. So I grew up in a really small, very redneck town in southern Indiana. Uh, is there any other Hoosiers in here? We got one. Come on, represent. You're probably way classier than where I'm from, but that's okay. But I'm from Madison, Indiana. You probably don't even know what that is. You probably never even heard of it. So it's a small 10,000 person town. Um, and my journey of faith started because my dad had a radical experience with the Lord and got saved. Uh, he went to prison for drunk driving after hitting a family riding bicycles and it killed a baby that was on the back of a bike. And so my dad, he was 31. He was already married. My sister was already alive. I was not yet born and he went to prison. But in that journey of the accident that he had, someone told him about Jesus. And you know, some people like, their experience with Jesus is like going to the beach and you get to the shore and it's like this long, slow, you know, the water gets to your ankles and then it gets to your knees and then it gets to your hips and you kind of slowly get into it. My dad cannonballed deep dive, deep end of all things Jesus because he was desperate. And I don't know, some people's journey of faith starts because they they hit rock bottom or they, they have such an experience where are like, I need something bigger than myself. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that was my dad's experience. And so he fell in love with Jesus. And so I had the privilege of being born after he got out of prison. Um, my mom stayed with him. That's a whole crazy, awesome testimony. The family that he hit gave their life to Jesus. Like God did, it's a huge story. It's incredible, but it's a whole nother time. So I, but I was born into a Christian home where my parents were genuinely loved God. Um, the the issue that we had was that the community that we lived in Indiana was a fairly godless community. So growing up, I was, as far as I was aware of, the only male Christian in my high school, about 1,200 students, and I was the only one out of the closet that I actually loved Jesus. And so there would just be times where it was um, lonely. Anybody ever been lonely for Jesus? Has anybody ever experienced that? It, it happens. Like. And, and, and if you're new to walking with Jesus, that's why we run together as family. Because if you don't stay connected to the bride, it gets really lonely. And, and where I was living, there just wasn't other youth that loved Jesus. Um, you know, I remember, uh, gosh, I was like the Christian, literally, like I was like the Christian kid. You're like, if you have a question about the Bible or Jesus, ask him. And I was not a Bible. I knew nothing. Like, I mean, I'd never been discipled. I didn't have any like great mentorship. I just had a genuine but simple faith in Jesus. Um, a crazy, crazy story is uh, I remember sitting at the, the, the art table in art class in high school and a kid named Michael Shermer said, hey, Adam, I have a question about the Bible. And I was like, all right, man, what's up? And he's like, no, I don't even remember what he asked, but I was like, I was answering it. And a kid named Jacob came up behind me, took a chain, put it around my neck and pulled me off of my stool. And like the chain caught my throat. He started choking me out. I happened to be a, a second degree black belt in karate, so I whipped around, did a little what's up, and showed him what's up. And I I actually am a second degree, but I haven't done it in years. You probably could all kick my butt. But but I still defended myself. We get through it, and you know, like the kid gets kicked out of school. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like, what in the world? And Jacob Box, the kid that that did that, you know, he wore like a trench coat and like four or five inch black boots and you know, goth style kid, you know, and didn't really talk to many people. And, but I had no idea why I did it. Two weeks later, I'm walking down the street, Madison, Indiana. And as I'm walking down main street, I see Jacob box on the same sidewalk, walking towards me. And I'm like, okay, Jesus, what do I do? Like, I'm nervous. Like, I don't want to die. This kid's crazy. You know, like I'm going all this and genuinely as I'm talking to the Lord, I feel like the Lord says in my vernacular, he's like, I got you. Now, I don't know if God sounds like that to you, but that's what, he, that's what he said. I got you. And I'm like, okay. And there was this unusual piece. And I was like, all right. So I just like keep walking and I'm, I'm hoping he just goes somewhere else, you know? So I keep walking. He walks up to me and he's like, hey, Adam. And I'm like, hey, Jacob. I'm like, what's going on, man? And he goes, hey, I want to tell you how sorry I am. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm so sorry I did that to you. And I'm like, can you fill me in a little bit on, on the why? Like, what's going on? He goes, well, he's like, are you familiar with tarot cards? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what about Ouija boards? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what about like voodoo? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I've been, I've been getting into all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, you, you shouldn't do that, you know? Um, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, so yeah, I've been getting into some of this stuff. And he's like, and when I was in art class and I heard you say Jesus and say the Bible and start talking about, talking about those things, a voice told me I had to kill you. And he's like, it was so loud and so strong that I couldn't help myself. So I took the chain that was connected to my wallet and my belt loop. And I just found myself going out after you trying to kill you. And I was like, you're not feeling like doing that right now, are you? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, thank God. And he goes, but what can I, he says, what can I do to show you how sorry I am? And I'm like, well, you can come to church with me on Sunday. And he's like, all right. So Sunday morning, I drive over and I pick up Jacob Box and I take him to church and we're sitting in church. You know, and it's, again, there's no youth. This is like, there's a bunch of little kids and a bunch of adults and me and Jacob and it's, and, you know, we're sitting there and, the, and, you know, God's presence is there. The, the church was actually going through a, a revival. I mean, there was like this stack of crutches and wheelchairs in the corner. People were getting saved. It just was somehow skipping high school. I don't know what the deal was. So Lord, get, reach high school students, it's name. So, but, but we were, you know, sitting there and uh, he preaches the gospel. He gives an altar call. And he's like, if you want, and it's like old school days, not where you like, you're like, hey, if you want to know Jesus, just come talk to somebody when you feel like it so you don't feel embarrassed. It was like, raise your hand and stand up right now Declare you want to give your life to Jesus, you know, one of those moments. So you're like, you're putting me on the spot. And all of a sudden, Jacob stands up. And I'm confident he is confused on what he is doing. So I'm like pulling his like Jenko jean, trench coat, golf clothes down. I'm like, sit down, man. And he's like, what, man, stop? And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Sit down. And he's like, no, he said, and he dead stares. He goes, he says I can be redeemed. And I said, what? He goes, he says I can be saved. What else would I want to do? But give my life to Jesus. I still feel it right now. Like that moment, I'm going, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, go for it, man. And he runs to the front and he gives his life to Jesus. There's now two Christian kids in high school. One is one who was a Christian. The other one tried to kill the other guy. But, <laughs> you know, there's, 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 a, there's a thing that comes with walking with Jesus and it's a testing of faith. And the lie that religion teaches, especially Christian religion, not, not the true walking with Jesus and the word of God, but the Christian religion, is that to follow Jesus means it just gets a whole lot easier and there's never problems and you'll never be tested until you actually open the Bible and you start to look at the lives of those who walk with God. And that's they're, they're not, nothing but being tested. It's part of the journey. And the sad reality is it happens to non-believers. It's just spiritual warfare. They're just getting defeated. But when you fall in love with Jesus, all of a sudden you have the resources of heaven. But when you're tested, you actually have something to resist it. But we still are tested. And I don't know why we seem to forget to talk about these things or be honest about these things. I mean, Jesus' whole promise about like standing, even when the storms comes, it's not like the storms won't come if you put your feet on the rock. It's when the storms come, because your feet are on the rock, you will remain standing. And so this, just, this testing of faith just started coming time and time again. I remember I went to college early, so I graduated high school because I hated high school, if you couldn't tell. And I went to college early, so I, I was a, I, my freshman year started technically my January of my senior year. And my very first day of school, like, I mean, I'm, in, I'm at Stanford University, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a GCU, yeah. And so it's not as big as you guys are now, but uh, but it's similar. And I'm, I'm I'm literally, I'm like waving at my parents and my mom's weeping. You know, that anybody had that scene? And they're like driving away and they're like, my baby. And I'm like, get out of here. You know, like I got some living to do, you know? And uh, they, literally, they leave and I turn around and I'm walking up this hill towards Smith dorm, which is like the, the guy's freshman dorm. And I'm walking up to it. And this dude comes like walking along the sidewalk. Hey man, what's up? You know, and like Southern ha- Hospitality a real deal they're like so warm and charming I'm like dude it's so nice to meet you yeah I'm new here I'm trying. here that's awesome hey man just wondering are you Calvinist or Armenian like very I'm three minutes without my folks on college campus ground and they're asking me a theological question and I've never heard of Calvinism at this point or Armenianism and I had no grid and so I said I, I have no idea what you're talking about and then he goes are you even saved and then he literally just walks away Our faith's going to be tested, guys. And sometimes it's friendly fire. Sometimes it's zealous but immature Christians that test our own faith. And all of a sudden I'm going, I thought I was. My simple faith is starting to be tested because there's isms I've never heard of. Right? And then, you know, we, God works through all that. And we can talk about those things later if you want to talk theology. But... I continue to grow in my faith. I continue to find these just pressure points. I remember being, uh, working a job at a concrete countertop company where you make countertops and I loved the job. It was great, but they were all potheads. The husband and wife, so I was an architect before I was in ministry. And this is when I was still in school for this stuff. So the owners were architects who wanted to smoke so much pot that they left their firms and started this company so they could smoke pot all day and have a job. So like that was the whole principle of it. And so it was me and seven other employees Including the husband and wife who owned it, and they would literally have pot breaks where they three times a day would get joints, and they would sit down together and they'd smoke a joint, and then they'd go back to work. And they thought I was insane for not wanting to join in on the pot breaks. And I was like, "No, it's just not really my thing," you know. Um, And they were like, "Is this because you're a Christian?" And they would just always berate me for being a Christian. You know, and I'm like, "Gosh, this is..." Like, you know, you'd see that like in a movie when it's like really cheesy and like overdramatizes reality. And here I'm living it. I'm like, people need to get your head out of the clouds. Man, what's wrong with you? Like literally like the smoke clouds. You guys are high and you need to come back to reality. You know, what's going on with you? You know, and I'm like, this is crazy. And then, it, and then I move, my wife and I get, we're married in co- we get married in college and we go to grad school in Boston where I pursue architecture. She pr- pursues grad school and we're living in Boston and we can't find a church. We lived there for four months. We Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, anytime you think a church might have a door open, we were going to some church. And we, I mean, I'm not 20, 30, I mean, we were pursuing churches, like truly looking for a church, not just like some people say they look for a church and they went once or twice, but we were genuinely wanting to find community and we could not find it. And I was like, are we gonna have to start a house church and just pray to God that God gives us a friend? It was so lonely. I felt so lonely. And we ended up finding one church that we committed to for a little bit. It was an all black church. It was called Emmanuel Morning Baptist Church. And I loved it. And literally it was me and my wife and everybody else was black. And they thought it was weird because I knew every song to every gospel song because I grew up loving that stuff. So like, I love black gospel music. It's like my, in my soul language and, and I love it. But like, they were like, who is it? And, but, and they were very nice to us, but we didn't fit in. And it, it, and it felt that way. Literally, because uh, during worship, everybody would have their head turned and staring at me the whole time. And I'm just like, hey, what up? You know, fancy you in the sanctuary. Come on, you know, come on, join it. You know, and, and we we're like, man. And then we finally found Antioch. Through a friend of a friend of a friend, there was a small church. It was like a hundred people. Actually, it was less than that when we found it. It was probably like 75 people. They met in the gym of a middle school. Horrible acoustics, feedback city on the sound system. Guitar player always broke a string and lost his place. The, worship, or the, the preacher was subpar. You know, it wasn't shiny, but God was there. And what was so beautiful is people loved each other there. In, in a way I never even knew it was possible. I was like, man, these people genuinely care about each other. And it was, the, it was probably the first real time in my entire journey as a Christian where I didn't feel alone. I actually felt seen. And I've been in churches, but I really felt seen. I really felt cared about. It wasn't just token. It was like, this person actually wants to champion my walk with God and love me and care about me. That's incredible. I pray to God you guys feel that way in this room. Because your faith is going to be tested and you need to know that you're not alone. And when you are tested, you need to know that you can have people you can run to and say, hey, I'm, I'm feeling weary or confused or hurt or I just need help. And we wanna be the family of God that does that for you. You do not need to do this thing alone. But then of all testing, God starts testing me. He shouldn't do that. But yet he goes and he does it anyway. I don't know if you've ever had this, but he asks me to do things I don't want to do. And so all of a sudden there's this like whisper that becomes ultimately a roar of leave architecture and go into ministry. And I'm uncomfortable with this because pastor's families are jacked up based on what I saw growing up. And I was like, I don't wanna have a jacked up family. I wanna be a normal family with normal kids. And I don't want them to hate me or hate God because I'm not the perfect father or whatever. You fill in the blanks, right? And I'm sitting there going, oh no. And then God calls me into ministry and my faith is tested. And I don't know if you've ever um, shared the gospel in a a place like New England um, or maybe San Francisco. I'm trying to think of similar cultures, but it's not popular to talk about Jesus in places like this. And so not only did I go into ministry, but I went into a ministry that was, into a city that was hostile towards the gospel. Um, one of the things I, I really love though when it came to this testing of faith is it goes both ways because in Boston people are really great about telling you what they don't believe but they have no backbone and they won't actually tell you what they do believe you ever met somebody like that they can, t- they can shoot you down I don't believe in Jesus I don't believe in that stuff I don't no 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 nay 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 shut down shut down shut down right but what I would do is, and this was usually give grace. But in Boston, this is where it was in the context of a pub. You'd be sitting at a pub somewhere and there'd be some person across the counter who is smarter than me. Like, cause the highest IQ per capita in the world is in Boston. So we're talking like some of the, truly like some of the smartest people on the planet all live in one little hub. And their, their God is their intellect. Their God is their ability to discern. And you are a weak-minded or a weak person to believe in something greater than yourself. And so what I had to do is I had to start to read and learn things about how do I communicate with people who, when, when, when I test them, I can help navigate them towards Jesus. And I read, I read about this guy named Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you've ever read him, but he's a old school theologian. Um, and he had this, this concept called personal theology, I really loved it. Uh, And the whole idea is, it's it's simple. He says, if your personal theology, like what you own at the core of who you are is not in alignment with scripture, it's Swiss cheese. There's holes in it. It's just not gonna work. Yeah, that Swiss cheese has holes in it. So, (laughs) right? And so he would give these examples and I started stealing these things and using these in pubs and people started giving their lives to Jesus. So I'd be sitting with somebody and they're like, you know, like a professor at MIT or something ridiculous, right? And I'm talking with them about, or Harvard, pick your place. And I'm like, hey, you know, talking about the Lord. And they're like, you're, you're weak and, you know, and they're very proud of themselves. I'm like, all right, so what do you believe? And I had to force them to tell me what they do believe, not just what they don't believe. And they're like, well, I believe in evolution and I believe in the big bang. And you're like, okay. And so where, where's, your, where's your paradigm for morality? And it's just, well, it's general respect as one mammal to another or whatever, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna shoot your wife and I'm gonna eat your kids. And I would look at them dead. I would let the silence ring out, you know? <laughs> and they'd be like, I'm offended. And I'm like, well, basis on what? What is your morality found on? I'm testing your faith, sir. And your faith tells me that your kids are my food and your morality tells me that your wife is breathing my oxygen, which is a threat to my capability to survive. And I'm getting them out of my way. And what you do is you start, based on Francis Schaeffer, is you take people's big, large statements when they finally say they believe in something and you press it and you press it and you press it it, into the point where it's personal. It can't just be general, big statements. People love to like, it's just love guys, just love people. Be tolerant and don't ever bring up any challenge and just love, you know, and you're like, great. Okay, so you're gonna tolerate me when I disagree with you? Well, no, that you're not, you're not being, you're being intolerant. Well, you gotta tolerate intolerant people to be truly intolerant. Like, you know, you just, you start to press. Does this make sense what I'm saying? You're testing faith is what you're doing. And you're pressing and you're saying what's really there. And I had to learn how to do this just to survive in Boston. And I found people giving their lives to Jesus when they really sat under the test. And I also found that Christians who were tested started becoming stronger. So even tonight, as I was praying and processing through just for you guys, I was praying that you wouldn't run from the test that the Lord puts you before. Even if it's the enemy's work, God says that he works for good, what the enemy intends for evil. So even when there's a pressing that's uncomfortable, If you're willing to stay in that position with with the Lord, see what fruit comes out of it and what kind of strength comes in your inner man. A Christian who's untested usually doesn't stand very long. But a Christian who's tested time and time again really learns their footing in the Lord. That's actually where they gain their authority and their anointing and their credibility in the things of the kingdom. Does this make sense what I'm saying? And you need to know this because you are right smack dab in the middle of what should be a testing journey season of your life, and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. But I would say the, the season of college, the season of young adulthood, and, and and truly being independent from your parents, and just saying, okay, like I'm I'm going after the things of who God's called me to be, and the ownership of that is going to be tested. And God wants you to hang in there and not run from testing or bail, but run to the family of God, align yourself with truth, so you're not Swiss cheese. And hang in there. Okay? All that was for free. Okay. Now, the next thing I wanted to bring up real quick is I want to, is it okay that I know we're going to jump into scripture? Bear with me, okay? This is not typically how I preach, but there's a couple of points I think God would want to make this morning, or this evening. It's, it's evening. You guys are at church at night. <laughs> the second thing is, is it's a little bit of a grammatical thing, but I think it has massive implications. And one is that in the context of the English language, when we use the word faith, because we're talking about journeys of faith, it is more of a, a descriptive, like it's a noun or it's descriptive in nature. It's not a verb. But the problem is, is when you look in scripture and you study the word of faith throughout scripture, it's a verb. And it actually has a massive implica- implication of what that actually means. The most famous passage in scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him, that word believe is actually the same root word that we get the word faith. So even though it used the word believe, it's still faith, but there's two major words of faith. The first one is pistis. Say pistis. pistis. And then say pasteo. pisteo. Okay, one is a noun, one is a verb. Besteo is this word, and this is the word that's used 98 times in just the New Testament, and it's the context of faith. And what this is saying is that faith is not just a intellectual ascension. It's not like if you go to our website and you wanna say, what does Antioch believe? And you look at our statement of faith. And you're like, oh, here's all these points. But it is, and it's a lifestyle, an agreement with a set of convictions that one owns in their life. There's, there's action to it. Does that make sense? So like it's active. And then really the reason why this word belief is used in that scripture is because it's more actually used as belief because it, it speaks of putting trust in Jesus. And that putting trust means it's not just like, oh, I mentally agree with Jesus. It's like, I'm putting my very livestock in Jesus and that's how I'm saved. Because the devil believes in Jesus and he's not saved. So it can't just be intellectual agreement with who he is. Jesus is God, well, the devil believes he's God. He just doesn't like that he's God, right? Right? I mean, so we have to to get past the whole, like, well, I believe this. Well, that's great, show me your life and show me how you're putting trust in Jesus according to that belief. And that is a more accurate, like Near East, early Judeo-Christian mindset. So every time they use the word faith in the context of even the gospels, it's more like you faith that way. You went and faithed yourself into this thing. It's like you, you activated, you did something in a verb to do something, does that make sense? And so there has to be, and the reason why I get frustrated about this is that American culture is cheap on faith. I mean, we are like, okay, with just like a couple nice quips and, and ideas or like we could answer a test. And we're like, see, I have faith. I can answer that correctly. And you're like, but your life isn't aligning with the fact that you actually own that to the core of who you are. And and it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him, who has active trust, who faiths themselves in a place of surrender and a place of abandonment and a place of if he doesn't come through, I'm screwed position and they shall be saved. Like that's actually like a more accurate way of describing what's going on here. And so there has to be this transition of like, I don't just like having a set of of beliefs that I agree to, but it's I live according to my convictions. And I believe God really wants us to move that way tonight. We're gonna look at four guys in scripture. Um, It's gonna be in Daniel chapter two and three. I'm gonna be jumping around, but you're welcome to open there if you'd like. And I'm going to redeem a story that children's ministry has stolen and I'm taking it back right now, amen? We love Daniel, we love Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Say what, Abednego, however you say his name. We're taking it back. And so, hey, I just wanna, but but the thing, the reason why I love these guys and I wanted to specifically talk on them and their faith is if you study the Bible and you study all the stories of the Bible, there are certain stories that, that have certain banners over them that God expresses certain attributes that He celebrates. Abraham and these guys are high on the list when you say people who lived with active trust in Jesus, or in the Lord. He did, wasn't his Old Testament, but you get what I'm saying. Puts their trust in God, right? And these guys did it. And what I love about these guys is, do you know that they were between the ages of 18 and 20? These aren't some old dudes. These aren't even like middle-aged dads with dad bods. These are college students. And literally they are like, so what happens is in their story is they, they get taken from their families and they're put in basically like a boarding school that Nebuchadnezzar puts together and says, hey, I wanna train up the next, the next generation of leaders. Give me your best and brightest. And he takes them from all the different villages of different cities that he's conquered. And these, that's how they even become friends. They gather together like in a boarding school. It's like going to college. And he starts to invest and they start going through this program. And I just wanna give a little context too of who Nebuchadnezzar is. Like, he is no joke. His father is the one who established the Chaldean dynasty that they're a part of. So his dad is a conquering leader who like gathers and recreates an entire nation. That's his dad, and he's born under that. And while his dad's doing that, he, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes the general and the leader of the armies of which brings the victory. So Nebi is like a bad dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's like, he's, he's a, a violent, strong warrior. That's who this guy is, right? He's so strong that he defeats the people of Israel, God's people, twice. The second time, destroying Solomon's temple that he built for the Lord, that David was all excited about and, 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 you know, and, and different people wanted to put together this temple for the Lord. He destroyed that. He's a wicked and shrewd, and probably the most powerful leader in his day. He is the, the tyrant, he is the Hitler, uh, he is the fill in the blank of, of his day where he would rule and reign over multiple people groups making them submit under his authority with tyranny, right? So that's, I just wanna give context. He's, he, and he reigned for 43 years. It wasn't like just a blip in the radar. He was, he was very successful at bringing tyranny. And all of a sudden, he, in this process, have also tried to progress culture and things. He creates a boarding school, pulls all these people together, and all of a sudden, there's these four guys that are in his lap as part of his training ground for the future. And what we do is we see in Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar is plagued by a dream. And he wants someone to interpret this dream because it's really, really, really bothering him. And so he gathers together all of like his you know, uh, what's it called? Like the the magicians and the set traps and the astrologers and all these, the wisest men of his kingdom. He gathers them together, but then he doesn't want them to like dupe him or trick him. And so when he gathers them together, he says, I want you to interpret my dream. They're like, okay, King, tell us the dream. And he says, no, you first have to tell me what my dream was. And then you have to interpret it. And they're going, that's impossible. No one can do this. He's like, great, I'm gonna kill y'all. That was his response. So he, did, he, he was gonna wipe out the wisest men of his kingdom and the magicians and all these like, like dark magic folks. He was gonna wipe them all out. But sadly, this included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they weren't there at this time, but they were a part of that group that he was gonna wipe out because they were not able to tell his dream. Well, Daniel hears about this and he goes and he asks to see the king and he says, can I have time to interpret your dream? And he says, yes. And so then he goes and he gets his buddies and they go and they get before the Lord and they cry out to God for mercy. And God in his mercy, he, he translates and tells Daniel the dream. And, and, and Daniel has a dream at night. And in his dream, God shows him the dream and he tells him what it means. Isn't this crazy? This is awesome. You know how much faith it takes to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar? Even to go say, hey, can I get a stab at it before you go wipe me out? Let me call him my God and see what happens. His faith is absolutely being tested. Is it not? This is crazy. But he goes and he does it. And then God gives, reveals the dream to him in this interpretation to Daniel. And I love this. The first act that he does is before he even goes and protects all those people from being murdered, he first begins to praise the Lord. It says this in verse 19 of chapter two. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He, he dispossesses kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made me known to what we have asked of you. And you have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel begins to declare praises to God of how important and right it is to put his faith in God, knowing God is the one who can answer the situation. Like, it always blows me away when people are having really struggling times, and I'm just as guilty of this, so it sounds critical, but I am in the mix of all this mess. But when we have a really hard season emotionally and we don't go to the Lord. You know his name is like mighty, like great counselor, mighty counselor, right? What better counselor do you need? And my wife is a therapist. I'm pro psychology, but like, you know, there's a difference between going to God in a difficult situation and just complaining about it, right? And there's got to be this place where we say, "I'm not going to just say oh, I'm so upset about it," and we're going to talk about it with my friend or whoever. But then actually getting before the Lord and saying, "God, my faith is in You. I'm putting. My, I'm activating my faith, not just in." Mental ascension, but of activating an activity, I'm going to say, God, what do I do with what my struggle is? So much of heartache can be immediately wiped out if we could learn to go to the Great Counselor and say, God, help me in this situation. And here, four dudes between the ages of 18 and 20 do it on behalf of an entire nation, and they're saving the wise men of the day because they're crying out to God, and God gives them the answer. And then he goes and he presents it to the king. Because of Daniel's ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream without being told, it reveals not just the wisdom of any wise man, but it reveals the actual wisdom of God. And so one thing I want you to understand is that in your journey of faith, if you're learning to trust God in the testing, wisdom is a fruit of it. Unwise people are people who run from the fight. Wise people are ones who lean into Jesus in the midst of the struggle and they learn to receive from the Lord. That's when wisdom is deposited. It's not in the running from it, but it's leaning into God in the midst of a struggle. And that's exactly what they do. And then I love this. Daniel said to the king, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. And the dream is true and it's interpreted as trustworthy. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate. Okay, greatest king alive has defeated all main known territories. He's now declared himself king of of Babylon. You've probably heard of Babylon, right? One of the most notorious kingdoms in history. He is the king of Babylon at this point because he's defeated the Syrian army. So, I mean, I'm telling you, this guy's powerful. And he falls prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that any offering and incense be uh, presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Wow. Daniel's faith being tested, but being proven changes and brings to the knees the most powerful man alive in the moment. Isn't that wild? It's unbelievable. I want us to truly imagine the scenario. And this is a true story. This isn't, Fictitious or just cotton candy here. Like this is real deal. This really happened, and it causes a king to respond. I have a friend named Sierra. She's in the Antioch movement. She's this feisty, like 23-year-old. Uh, she went to Baylor as part of the college ministry at Antioch Waco. And, you know, she now lives in DC and she got a job at the bottom of the totem pole working for a congresswoman in Washington, DC. So she works in the state building and she goes in and she's like, but I mean, she's like delivers mail, staples papers, I don't know. Like, it's not like the most glamorous job, okay? But she loves Jesus. She feels called to DC to pray for leaders of our nation. And so she moves there, so she can be a part of being near leaders to pray for them as she just serves them. And as she's serving this congresswoman, one particular day, this is last year, the congresswoman sprained her ankle really, really bad. Like couldn't walk on it. And she's in the office, and she has this this beaten up leg, and she's hurting. And Sierra has the faith to say, "Hey, can I?" And this congresswoman doesn't believe in Jesus, and she says, "Hey, can can I pray for your ankle?" I believe that my God is a God who heals and I believe he can heal your leg. Would you be okay if I pray for it? And she was weirded out as any non-believer probably would be. But she said, yeah, go for it. So she leans over and she prays for it and instantaneously God heals her ankle. Cool. And it's not just like a, a little sprain like, oh yeah, I can. Okay, it was like a it was like a 10, but now it's like a six. And it was like the swelling could visibly was gone. The bruising was immediately gone. Like It was a tangible miracle. God healed her. So she's like, oh my gosh, like, who are you again? Like, I didn't even know your name in my office kind of thing. Like you were a nobody, but now, now I see you, right? Well, over the, from last year to the present day, Sierra keeps gaining favor with this Congresswoman. Like Congresswoman asked her to pray for things or she would say, hey, what do you think about this? So she started, she was intrigued by this young woman of faith. Like, who is this person? They're, they're different because of their faith. And so she keeps asking her different things. Well, then eventually she gets promoted and then she gets promoted again. And she's like, I'm in a position I am completely unqualified for. Like, I don't have the smarts. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the experience. I shouldn't be doing this. But some reason this lady thinks I should be doing this. And it ends up finding out that she's gonna go on a flight to Central America with her because this woman is presenting at an international delegation about trade and commerce between all of her nations of Central and South America. So there's this massive convention. There's like a big, like fancy, like political room where all the delegates sit, representing all the different nations. And this Congresswoman's going to present. And so she gets to be like the plus one, right? And she's like, I don't know why I'm going here. Well, as they're there, and there's time for this Congresswoman to present, unbeknownst to Sierra, the Congresswoman gets up and she's like, hi, my name's Congress or whatever. And I'm from the United States and I'm here to talk about trade and commerce. And I'm gonna invite Sierra up because Her God is with her. And I would like for you to hear what she has to say. That's how she was introduced. Her God is with her. And Sarah's like, say what? (laughs) And then she gets up and because she was helping write the speech and she had enough contact, she was able to then deliver their perspective on trade and commerce with the United States engaging with South and Central America. But then afterwards... The congressman comes up, and now I'd like you to hear about her faith, Sierra. And then Sierra gets to present Jesus to leaders of South and Central America as a 23 year old. Because she's willing to pray for some gal's ankle in the office, because she's willing to do something risky in her faith, because she's willing to activate faith beyond just some mental ascension. Do you believe God can heal? Yeah, sure. Do you put yourself in a position to show that God can heal? How often? I'm getting a little bit of ring here, buddy. And so, I just believe God is wanting to tell you that you are not waiting to go to your journey of faith. You're already in it. Do you hear me? You don't have to arrive at something, friends. It's not like, okay, when I get my real job, or when I'm married, or when I earn a certain amount of money or when I get this position. No, your faith has already begun. Your journey has already started the moment you said yes to Jesus. The thing that you need to recognize is that it has to get outside of just a mental intellectual ascension and it has to be activated to where you actually do things in your everyday context that shows a life of faith. And yes, at times it's uncomfortable, but I promise even that stuff goes away. It really does, genuinely. And I'm not saying that as a pastor, I'm just saying that as a person. And I like to think of myself as fairly normal and not that weird. But the things that used to be like stretching for me are not stretching anymore. And I'm like, who cares? Like God's done too many things. I've seen too many, me personally, too many blind people see, deaf people hear, broken arms healed, scars be literally gone that was there, a scar like removed by God and a metal plate came out of somebody's arm. I mean, I've seen God heal. I've seen people that I thought would never get saved. Like, like you could put an ocean and that person in front of me and say, okay, I have more faith for the ocean to be split and walk on dry ground than this person to give their life to Jesus and God goes and he saves their soul. And I just have, I have, there's too much of that in my life for me to sit there and say, oh, I don't know, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, God, do whatever you want. I'm in. Whatever you wanna do, I wanna do. But I, but I wanna be a person who walks out my journey of faith. And what I, you need to hear is you don't need to wait to arrive. You can be a Christian for five minutes, start living by faith. Like there isn't this like moment that like you've earned enough credentials in like Bible study, Right? I'm pretty sure the disciples were a mess, complete and utter mess. I mean, the sons of thunder wanted to kill, like this blows my mind, wanted to wipe out an entire people group because they didn't respond to Jesus's message. And Jesus doesn't fire them. And I'm telling you right now, if any of our college staff came to me and was like, you know what, GC is just not responding to the Lord. I think we should just kill him. You know, I'd be like, I love you, but you're not fit for ministry. Right, Like it'd be like, you're out of here, right? But the Lord keeps these guys in the game. It blows my mind how merciful Jesus is, right? They were a mess. You don't have to be perfect. If anything, faith is risk where you could fail. And even, especially real faith is when you fail and you choose to keep believing. How you respond to failure really shows the substance of one's person's faith, right? If you really wanna know what's in there, like what what level do I really, like I have these like fantasies of like being a hero in a situation where, you know, this sounds so dark, so give grace, but like if someone like was like, I'm gonna kill you or reject Jesus, I'd be like, forget y'all, Jesus, woo, right? But we don't really know what's in there until we're ever put in a position of being tested. But what you can do is you can have the small wins today on the small things. And those small yeses of victory and trusting God and putting faith in Jesus and saying, man, like, I know I'm supposed to talk with that classmate or that that boss, or I'm supposed to give that thing that is costly to me, or I'm supposed to go to that place and have that weird conversation with that one. Whatever the deal is, you start having those small victories, that's where you get your authority in the big public affairs. It isn't because you just show up. You cultivate that. You steward your soul into faith. And it's these, these small but consistent victories of yeses so that when the take comes and there's ever a big yes, you're like, I've been doing this my whole life. Like I've already, this is the way in which I live is by faith. And it's not just mental ascension. I active trust in the way I live. We see this later on after Daniel gets promoted because of this, because the king's like, you're dope and you heard God. And he gives God glory in that. He then promotes also Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego because they're buddies and they're all together. And he sees them all and he promotes them all. Well, then what happens shortly after that is then Nebuchadnezzar has this awesome idea of what if I build like a 90 foot high by nine feet wide gold statue and tell everybody on the planet they have to worship it. Oh, and if they don't, I'm gonna cut them up into small pieces. That's his punishment. You'll be cut up into small pieces. Like, wow, so detailed. (laughs) right. Well, obviously what is happening to these four men? Their faith is being tested, right? They're going, um, I have, a, I have a problem with that, you know, I don't bow down to an idol. Like my faith is authentic, my faith is being stewarded and my faith tells me I can't do that, right? And there's gonna be times guys in our culture where you're gonna have to do this stuff. Hear me, there'll be times in your life where you will have to just draw a line in the sand and say, will I either live by faith and trust in Jesus or whatever pressure is coming my way saying I have to do something other than. There'll be many times for that. And these, I mean, hopefully you won't be cut into small pieces. So you got that going for you. But you will lack integrity and you will sacrifice potentially your witness. And you may hand over some of your, some of the way in which you operate as a testimony for the Lord or your rights as a follower of God and our culture and our country. So there's gonna be things that are gonna come our way that's gonna test us. And like these men, we've got to respond differently. And this is what happens. They say, we're not gonna do that. And then some of the wise men tattletale on these guys and Nebuchadnezzar gets really upset about it. And this is the specific, I think this is such a potent question. He says to them, he says, he gave them another chance and he said, hey, come and worship the statue. And he asked if, he said, if he, threw, he says to these guys, if I throw you into the furnace, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Like what God would be able to rescue you from my hand? He's literally going direct opposition to their faith. And then verse 16 of chapter three says, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Could you imagine talking to the king that way? we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, like we want, we want to make sure you're clear on this, King. Your majesty, so they're still polite, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. He gets so upset by this that he tells them to increase the heat of the furnace. And it gets so hot that as they're being tossed into the furnace, the soldiers throwing them in die of the heat because it's that hot. So just to get them into the furnace that he created for them to kill them, the soldiers die getting them into it. The king observed, weren't there three men we we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. They were not only more actually unscathed, but it goes on in such detail, it says that as they pulled them out, they didn't even smell of smoke. Isn't that wild? Like even the smoke of the furnace couldn't like stick to them because the aura of God protected them so much. So Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God. See so who's getting credit in their faith? Come out, come out here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and they saw that they were not harmed in any way. Then Nebuchadnezzar said in this verse 28, chapter three, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Listen to this, they trusted in Him. Can you say that with me? They trusted in Him. Say it one more time. They trusted in Him. Pisteo. They they lived active trust in their God. It wasn't some mental ascension. They put their lives where their faith was, where their belief system was. And the result was God showing His glory in them and through them. And then, I love this. And, the, and this, is, this is King Nebuchadnezzar saying this. They trusted him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be torn into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Talk about a 180. Then the king promoted again Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and the province of Babylon. This is the thing you need to understand when it comes to having your faith tested and seeing where your faith is. Something you need to notice that these guys do though. Their faith wasn't in an outcome. And you'd be amazed how often we do this with God. I trust you, God, with this assumed expectation that this is gonna be what happens in my life. I'll trust you in this issue where I'll go in low in this conference that I'm having my friend and I'm gonna come in low and I'm gonna show that I'm a real Christian. I'm gonna activate my faith, but I do expect that friend to ultimately apologize back to me. Or I'll trust you with my finances and I'll give to that thing that I feel like you put on my heart to give to, but I'm assuming you're gonna also provide all these other things in great detail that I need or want. Their faith had nothing to do with an outcome. Their faith was in the power of the God they served. And his will his desire, whatever he deemed best, even at our expense. There has to be a revelation of how good and big God is and how worthy he is of our lives to have real faith. Because if faith is really just what we get out of it, our faith is more in our comfort, our blessing, our kingdom, not his kingdom. It gets really perverted really quickly and twisted. And what makes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so amazing is that they had real encounters with God that that they stored up over time so that when the real testing came, their faith wasn't an outcome, but it was actually in the Lord. And they had open hands to whatever it looked like. They didn't have to have control. How would that feel for you right now if I said, let go of control of all the things that are happening in your life? Your studies, your career, your major, your relationships, the awkward fam- uh, friendship dynamic that's struggling or the family dynamic that you wish was better. And you just said, God, I just, I give it up. I hand it over to you. My faith is in you more than the outcome of these things. Knowing though, that as I trust you, you're a God who blesses what, what, what's in my life. He is good. He does bring blessing. It's not like he's looking to, to spite us or bring us to demise or something like that. Like he loves us but you say, I live open-handed and I just, I'm in for whatever you wanna do, Lord. If you're not having encounters with God that shows the goodness of God in your life, you won't have anything to stand on when the faith is tested. It's another point. So you don't believe in an outcome. Second of all, it has to be founded on the nature of God. If you don't think God's good, you're gonna have a really hard time putting your faith in him or wanting to. Even if you're like, he's still God, but I just don't like him. That's a problem. I love another random story. I'm just gonna bring this up, but there's a guy named Obed-Edom and he's like this blip on the radar of scripture. You probably have never even heard the name Obed-Edom, but he's probably my favorite person in the Bible. And Obed-Edom, we find him uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the context is this, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to the city of Jerusalem, to the city of David, where King David is king and he is pumped. This is when David's acting like, like a fool. Anybody know the story? Right, And he's like, I'm bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is basically this golden box that has very specific details from God on how to build it. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the covenant being like the 10 commandments are placed inside of it. And then God says, I'm gonna actually let my presence reside in this box. And so you're you're physically gonna take with you my presence. So this is pre-Jesus coming and the Holy Spirit dwelling with the believer. So this is literally the next best thing that they have. Well, God's presence can be carried with us everywhere we go. One problem is you have to, you have these poles and you have to have all these Levitic priests carried over their shoulders. And if you touch the box, you die, no big deal, right? Because his glory is too crazy powerful that just to touch the box, you die. And so they are carrying this on the way to the city of David. And all of a sudden it says that part of the, the train is there's this, um, these oxen and they stumble and it makes the box start to tilt. So this guy named Uzzah, poor dude with a bad name, reaches out, touches the box and he immediately dies. So everybody freaks out. They're like, "Crap, what do we do?" Right? So they leave the Ark of the Covenant at Obed-edom's house. So this is just, just dude who is right place right time. It's like by the way, you just won the lottery, you know? You get the presence of God at your home. And so for 3 months this guy gets the presence of God at his house. Could you imagine like the tangible God in his living room? David starts to hear about how everything in his home and everything that he's about is being blessed. Like just by being in the presence of God, everything at Obadidim is around his house and all of his business activities. Like everything he does is being blessed and David gets super jelly. He's like, this is not okay. And so he demands that we bring this Ark of the Covenant to my city. So they go back and they eventually get it and they bring it. And this is when David is dancing in his PJs and his wife's embarrassed about him and I don't know if you know that whole part and he comes in and they finally bring it but what's crazy is this if you so this is just like a cool little story obedium just right place right time gets blessed by the presence of god right but what we find out is that if you follow along further down in first chronicles 15 so this is another place in the Bible, it says, and the Levites carried the Ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. So this isn't as detailed as 2 Samuel's version, but it's like another version telling about the story. It said, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, cymbals. So the Levites appointed Heman son of Joel, for all of his relatives, and it starts listening to relatives, okay? It's just like random people. Asaph and some relatives with Mary Titus and with them relatives next to them, Zechariah, Jazeel, July, Uni, Eleb, and then Matanya and it's this long line and then Makenya and then obed and Jeel and the gatekeepers. You're like, hold on, what? Surely there's not like that many obed running around. That's a weird name. So you're like, obed oh, okay. Then you might go down to First Chronicles chapter 26. And it starts to give a list of the gatekeepers in the city of Jerusalem who literally stand guard to guard the gate to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And in this list, not only is it Obed-Edom's name, but then it has his son's names. And not only his son's name, then it has his grandson's names. And if you do the math, Obed-Edom's house was like three weeks journey from the city of Jerusalem. So what happened was he got so rocked by the presence of God for those three months that he, in him being the leader of his home, which would have been more like a tribe, it would have been probably like 50 to 100 people, they all moved to Jerusalem so that he can take a job as a gatekeeper to the Holy of Holies because he has to be as close as he's allowed because he's not a Levitic priest. He's not allowed to actually tend to the actual Holy of Holies, but it's the position closest that he's allowed to have by the Jewish law. And not only is he as close as he can get but there's generational faith released down the line where their sons say, I wanna be as close as I can be. And their grandson saying, no, I wanna be as close as I can be. Do you hear what I'm saying? Our faith, when we go through our journey of faith and we're willing to allow it to be tested, but we lean in and we say, God, I'm actually about this, not for me and for my gain, but for you and your glory. And I wanna be wherever you are and do whatever you're doing. It doesn't just bless us, it becomes a legacy. It's a generational legacy. You can, you can actually inherit faith from your predecessors. And so one practical thing is if you're someone who just says, I lack faith, you need to find people full of faith around you and say, can I hang out? It like rubs off. It's good. Be like, man, like, like you trust God. Like my wife is a woman of faith. It's, I, I believe it's a spiritual gift of her life. It's things are just very matter of fact. I'm the emotional basket case going, I don't know. And what did the Lord really say? And I'm that guy. And she's like, shut up. God already said it. It's going to happen come on, catch up. You know, it's just like very matter of fact. You want people like that around you. You want people who can help you when your faith is waning. Because all of you are called to a journey of faith. That for some of us, all of us. And the last thing I want to say is this. It's just a little study, a little nerdy word study on Luke 137. You've heard it, I'm, I would think. It's for nothing is impossible with God. You ever heard that before? It's a, it's a statement of faith, right? For nothing is impossible with God. The ESV translated, translates it more as, uh, for, no, for no word from God will ever fail. That's NIV. For no God, a word of God. That sounds very different. Nothing is impossible with God. You have another translation. It's for no word of God will ever fail. And then if you get really nerdy, which is something I enjoy a whole lot, and you actually do a word study where you break down the whole sentence structure, this is accurately what this says. Ready? For no freshly spoken word of God will ever come to you without its own ability to perform itself. I'm gonna say it again, then I'm gonna unpack it. No freshly spoken word of God will ever come to you without its own ability to perform itself. So in our journey of faith, there's times where we're like, I know I'm supposed to do this thing. God's spoken that I'm supposed to do this thing. And you, but then your immediate response is, I can't. You ever felt that way? Oh, you got the wrong guy. You know, this is the Gideon moment. I don't know if you know Gideon in the Bible, but an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, rise up mighty warrior. And he's like, um, I'm the least of the least of the least of these and I'm hiding. You got the wrong guy. And he's like, no, rise up mighty warrior. And he speaks identity of him, right? When God calls you to something, packaged within the very command that he calls you to, is the very power for you to accomplish what he just told you to do. That's what Luke one thirty seven says. That's why nothing is impossible with God. Obviously God can do anything, but this isn't in the context of can God do anything. This is saying for you, nothing is impossible for God. And how is that possible? It's because in the very messaging, as he speaks to your heart or your mind, and it gives you a vision, a calling to live by faith, packaged in the very thing is the very ability to complete itself. So what's the thing you're going, man, I just, I can't. I want to, I want to be a person of faith. I want to have my own journey of faith. I want to have my own calling and I want to live for the kingdom, but like this or that or whatever our excuse is. Do you know that already God's giving you the power to see it through? Already, right now, there's already a grace for you to see it through. It removes our ability to say I can't because he says I've already given you the ability so that you can. Now, not in your own strength, but he has given it to you when he called you to it. And as I was praying for this for tonight, I just felt a really strong sense of jealousy that you would recognize that you don't need to wait for something to start. Like my journey begins at this point, or maybe if I get through this or what? like you're in it, you're in your journey of faith. And God is saying, I've called you to something. And you wanna have, and he's calling you to have small, private, hidden victories so that you can stand and have public successes as well. And he's called you to say you can, not because of your own strength, but he said, I've already called you something, so therefore I've given you the very power to accomplish it. And he's also saying, hey, don't live for the outcome, live for me. And I I was just praying that you would have some Obed-Edom encounters with God. Like that's, that's where it led me to. I was just praying and I was like, Lord, I pray for each college student in our church. They would have just like radical, tangible experiences with the Lord. So much so that they would like have a change in the way of life, right? They would have a change in the way of, I can't live the way I did because my faith is now different. And now for me to have that faith, I actually have to exercise my life in a new way. There's a change in the way of life. And if that means I need to move to be wherever God is, I will just like, oh, I'll do whatever because I know it creates a legacy for generations that we are those who serve the Lord. Amen. Will you stand with me? We're just gonna have a time of response. The man can come on up. And there's just a couple things I feel like you need to process with Jesus. And this is the deal. It's whatever is honest with you in the Lord, whatever is real with you responding to God tonight. And it could have something very specific to what I say, or it could be something other that you know, the Holy Spirit is like, has your number and he's talking to you about it right now. But the areas in which I was feeling stirred for you is one is like creating a hunger for his presence, like, oh, I just wanna be where he is. Knowing that if I get in his presence, my faith will be stirred because I'll be like, I wanna do whatever he, you'll see how good he is. You'll see how worthy he is. You'll see how holy he is. And you'll say, I'm all in, I'll move my family. I will change my life. I will change in the way of life to be wherever he is. Another thing I felt stirred by was just some people in the room where you felt tested in your faith and maybe you failed. Maybe you didn't say the thing you were supposed to say or you did say, you said something you shouldn't have said or you 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 hid versus, you shrieked back versus stepped up in faith and encouraged in a moment. And I think God wants to, to, to give you just a loving, sweet grace to that moment and say, that's part of the testing journey for you. But let's not repeat that course. Let's learn to like respond with a greater conviction of who God is in your life. So even if there's a place of like, man, I feel like I need to repent for like, back, And I just have one, one testimony for that and, and then we're gonna respond. But my wife, uh, the, the psychology world is very anti-Jesus for the most part. It's a pretty secular uh, environment. And my wife, we have a group practice here in town. Uh, she works with the, um, the licensing board for State of Arizona. She she's, has some authority and leadership in the state over psychologists. And, um, and there's been two specific times that God convicted her where she didn't stand up as a Christian when there's a moment to do it. And she backed out in intimidation because she didn't wanna feel attacked by other psychologists because they can be very anti-Christian. Well, when the Lord did that, he convicted her. This was on a a Sunday. Monday morning, my wife woke up and she wrote an email to the entire listserv of every psychologist in the state of Arizona. So every therapist in the state of Arizona got an email from her saying, my name is Shelly Reed. I'm a clinical psychologist in Chandler, Arizona, and I love Jesus. And I wanna pray and ask Jesus to bless our industry and to see people have greater measures of healing and mental health. If there's anybody else that would like to pray with me, I'm gonna come and start having, and they meet over here in the prayer room on our property. And she says, if anybody wants to come, come and we can pray together. But I just want you to know, this is my conviction. She had 21 people respond all of them were saying, I thought I was the only Christian. Every one of them said, I thought I was the only one. And they were all scared and they were all hidden and they were afraid to stand up in faith. You have to understand when you have breakthrough in your faith, it rubs off and gives other people courage. And now those people meet on Sunday nights at five o'clock in the prayer room, praying for healing for people in our state together. Where's that thing that you need to rise up and say, I need to not be scared to associate myself with Jesus. I need to not back away from something God's asked me to do knowing that he's given me the very power to accomplish it. So Lord, I pray right now that you would do that. God, would you come and would you stir our faith, stir our affections for you. May we see things the way you see things. May we, may we, we break off the fear of man in Jesus' name. May it have no place May the fear of the Lord be so much greater, not out of a, what would we do without you, but what would we do if we didn't have you? Lord, we wanna be associated with you because you're our, you're our savior, you're our refuge. You're the one whom we run to in the time of need, not away from it. So God, I pray that faith and courage would rise up. And I pray, Father, that these students would know that they're not waiting for something to start, they're already in it and there's already already opportunities, even on the smallest daily victories of faith moments. I speak boldness in Jesus name. And I pray that it not just be loud, but it be moved with compassion. There'd be this rise up in their heart to see people loved and healed and restored. And so there's just this boldness to just declare, what you need is Jesus. Let me help you with Jesus. Let me let me walk with you through to to Jesus. And there's just this encouraging, uplifting, overflowing heart posture. So Lord, I bless these students with that. Lord, where there's this sense of like I've 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 I'm a hypocrite or I'm not Christian enough or I'm not a good representation. Lord, may they experience right now just the grace and the mercy of God that you don't expect perfection. It doesn't say in Hebrews that perfection is what pleases God. It says faith is what pleases the Lord. So you can fail and please the Lord if it's done in faith. It's just a leaning in and a a risking and a stepping out towards the things of God. And I pray that these students would be faith filled in their journey in Jesus' name, amen. If there's a ministry, folks, you guys wanna come up and if you guys want prayer with anybody, you can. If you wanna just spread out in the room, whatever is authentically real with you responding to Jesus, let's do that right now.